Man, what a powerful morning of worship. Good to see you all here. I was just thinking about the lyrics of that song and if, just wondering if I truly embrace the truth of that lyric, that holy design, this place in time. We believe in a God who purposes, a God who has purposed every man in every season of life, and you are here today on purpose. I hope you believe that. Holy design is this place in time. I believe you are here on purpose, not by accident. And my prayer for you is that God would meet you today in a powerful way, in a more powerful way than I can meet you, in a more powerful way than any person in this room could meet you. The spirit of the living God would meet you today. That's my prayer for us as we get ready to open to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in Galatians 4 in the Redemption Story Sermon Series. As we get ready to get started, our, um, our first sermon in this sermon series, we were in Ephesians 1. And one of the benefits of, of our redemption in Christ is that we've been adopted into God's family. And so specifically today, we're going to be talking about our adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. And so in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at something that can be a very uncomfortable topic uh, for us in our culture, but, but was really true of every human being that has ever lived. We're going to be talking about authority. And here's why that's uncomfortable. Because every human being is born with a sense of rebellion towards authority. Okay, whether it's a person, the idea of a deity, God's word, the laws of the land, Right, So we don't like, inherently, we don't like anyone or anything telling us what to do. Now, it plays out in different forms. So we think about being children, growing up under authority. Some of us were really rebellious kids. I mean, we pushed back hard. From, from the moment we were born, we were rebellious. Others of us may be a little bit more crafty, a little bit more uh, sly in your rebellion, Others of you were rule followers on the outside while on the inside thinking, I can't wait till I'm a parent. I'll never do it this way. And so from the beginning, right, we know that as human beings, we don't like authority. And the converse of that is what? We love self-autonomy. We love deciding what we want to do. Right? We work really hard throughout the week and throughout the year to create pockets of time where we get to rule. We get to decide, here's what I'm going to do and here's what I'm not going to do. And the rest of the time, we find ourselves, what, under this sense of authority. And we tell you that, we're talking about authority from the laws of the land. We have a government that sits in authority over us nationally, statewide, locally. We have an authority. On one hand, we're thankful that they're there until they pull us over for speeding, right? And then all of a sudden, we don't like the authority anymore. There are other forms of authority that we can't deny. Gravity. Do you know that gravity is an authority over you? If you're a human being walking on earth, right, you can't escape gravity. It's an authority over you. And we don't like it, do we? I mean, try this on the way out. Trip, trip and fall down. And tell me how much you like being under the authority of gravity. Right? But it's inescapable. There's a certain givenness to the world we live in. Laws of physics. Laws of nature. How about morality? Right? It's wrong to take somebody else's life. Right? That's, that's a given. Right? You, 
Right? That, that in any culture, any time, that's a given. It's wrong, to do, it's wrong to steal things from another human being that don't belong to you. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to give your word and break your promise. Those are, there's a givenness to the world we live in. And yet each one of us in our own pursuit of self-autonomy, self-identity, right, we push back in those places and we learn how to adapt and follow only the rules that we have to to get what we want out of life. With that comes this longing to be set free. Each one of us longs to be set free. We love freedom, don't we? I mean, at the end of the day, we love to take our shoes off and just set our feet free, right? We love a sense of being, right, free. Nothing pressing in on me. Nothing pressuring me to do anything. At the end of the day, you clock out, right, for what? You want some freedom. I want to be where nobody's telling me what to do. We vacate, what, to get just a moment of freedom because the rest of our year, somebody else is telling us what to do. Even the laws of nature, we've been working hard as a civilization to, to break the barriers of gravity, to be set free, and, and what? And we've, we've figured out how to put people in an aluminum tube with a, with a fossil fuel propelled motor and get off the earth for a little, while, a little while, but we still have to what? We have to come back down. Why? Because of gravity, there's a givenness to the world we live in. And so when we come together and we worship and we, we proclaim, proclaim these great things about God, ultimately what we're saying is, God, we're under your authority. You're the author of the universe. Gravity was your idea. The sense of, of morality among human beings, is you, it's a reflection of your character. You call us to be good because you're good. You call us to be loving because you're loving. There's a givenness to the world we live in. Well, in spiritual terms, we're going to be looking at what it means to be adopted as children of God under the authority of a good father. And the word is going to tell us that every human being is under a spiritual authority, whether we realize it or not. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. In verse 1, the apostle Paul is going to draw an interesting contrast between being a child living in a household versus being a servant living in that same household. Here's what he says. Verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, a child, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave or a servant. So we're not talking about, um, you know, United States slavery, 1800s. This, type, this, is a, this is a type of slavery that was more like having servants in your household, employees in your household. But either way, the children of the house just got compared to the servants or the slaves. That's a strange comparison. The first time I read it, I didn't get that. And here's what he's saying. He's going to go on to explain why he's comparing children to servants. So he said that children are no different from a slave, even though that child in the long run is actually the owner of everything. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, but he, this child, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's comparing being a child versus being a servant, saying this, ultimately, you're under authority, whether you realize it or not. Even before you became a child of God, you were enslaved. Now, here's a great irony. Oftentimes, in our own minds, our own perception, there's a lot of freedom in not pursuing God, doing what I want to do. 
right? And there's this false sense of autonomy and, and I'm making my decisions for myself. And all the while, the word of God is saying, you know what? There's a very subtle authority over you that you don't even recognize. Do you know that you can be submissive to the most subtle things in life and not even know it? How many of you have changed your, your, your course where you were driving to, to pull over and get a frappuccino or a smoothie or a favorite treat of some sort, right? It wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't what you had set out to do. And then all of a sudden this longing and this urging welled up inside of you. And next thing you know, you hit your blinker and you're pulling in and you're getting yourself a grande vanilla frappuccino with a little caramel drizzle on top, right? And so the most subtle things in life call us into obedience, You've walked into a grocery store with your list, and you even went in saying, I'm not going to buy anything that's not on my list, only to do what? Walk past a bar of chocolate, and it just called your name. Just called to you, just subtly, please buy me. I'll be so good, and I'll make you so happy. And here's how we know it's slavery. How many times do we make these kind of decisions, and afterwards, we regret it? We wish we wouldn't have bought the extra dessert or, right, and, and, and done the thing. We knew we shouldn't have done, but yet we gave in. We submitted to this craving, this longing, and then afterwards we regretted it. And all the way home, we were, I'm going to do 15 more minutes on the treadmill tomorrow because I ate this banana split. So good. See, the most subtle things in life try to control us, don't they, and influence and, and alter our course, and, and, and we don't even realize Right? Even before we became Christians, how we were slaves. We felt very autonomous. We felt in control. We felt like we were doing our own thing, only to realize so many times we were often like puppets in a play, being influenced. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, he says that we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. And if you're familiar with his writings in the New Testament, that's a pretty common phrase. He uses that to describe the influences on our life before we became Christians. And now that, those influences can be varied. Circumstances, people around us, you know, friends, people whose attention we long to have, right? Those things, that can be a strong influence, can't it? The applause of man can be a strong influence. He, he says these are elementary principles that try to govern your life and influence you in a certain direction. And ultimately, he's going to say, you know what? But there's a master of design behind those schemes, and it's Satan himself. But there's an enemy who seeks to devour you, to, to kill, steal, and destroy your life. And he's using these subtleties to control you and manipulate you. Now, think about that. This same author, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, writes a long chapter on this battle between who we are slaves or servants to. And he's going to build the case. It's one or the other when it comes to God. You're either under his authority or you're under the authority of this world. And so I'm going to read a couple of verses from Romans 6. We'll throw these on the screen for you. We're going to jump to verse 14 in Romans 6. And he's talking to Christians and he's, he's, he's admonishing us and he's reminding us. Now, just so we can kind of get ready for what we're about to read, um, any Christians in the room, this is going to be risky, still struggle with sin besides me. I, I mean, just, I know there's got to be one of you besides me. Okay, there's a couple of honest people in the room. The rest of you just submitted to, right? Just submitted to this desire to not want to be known. Right, we struggle with sin. And so the, Paul's going to address that. He's going to explain that. 
And the first statement we're going to read says this, and it's just a reminder to us who are in Christ. For sin will have no dominion over you. Dominion's a strong word, isn't it? That's a sense of authority. He's saying to those of us who are in Christ, sin does not get to have the final word over you. It doesn't, not by force. If sin has a final word over you or influences you, he's going to say it's because you've gone back to it and you've handed yourself back over. Look at what he says. Since you were no, under the, no longer under the law, but under grace. And so he's going to use these bold categories to describe. So when he says this, under the law, here's what he means. He, ultimately this. When you're trying to guide and govern your own life apart from Christ, you're trying to create your own identity, your own sense of worth, your own sense of value and purpose, your own rules, your own game, your own pattern in life. Ultimately, you've got this little kingdom you're building with laws and rules and your own judiciary system. Above that, though, is the governing law of God, the inescapable governing law of God. You can choose to say if you want to, in my kingdom, this is what's right. This is what makes me happy. This is what's wrong. This is what makes me sad. Right? But in the end, there's a God, and we come to those moments, don't we? We look back in hindsight and go, wow, I hated that season, but now I look back and I see the goodness of it. Because why? There's a governing law of God over it. But apart from Christ, right, the only way to find pleasure, to, be, find the, to, to receive the pleasure of God is to earn that favor by obeying the law perfectly. Do a show of hands real quick. Anybody working on that route in life? Why? Because we all know it's futile. There's not a person in the room who can obey the Ten Commandments, and that's just ten, right? Just baseline, basic, don't kill this person, don't steal that. Worship God, no other gods. And we go, oh, that's, that's the basics of Christianity. Surely I can obey that. Uh-uh. Jesus comes and he teaches on the Ten Commandments. He said, oh, okay, really? You're a perfect, perfect man? Never cheated on your wife? Let me ask you this. You ever lusted in your mind, your heart after a woman? Yeah, guess what? That's breaking the commandments too. Oh, guilty. And so that's being under the law. It's a slavery to that. Right? And so we've got some options. We can throw up the facade. We can pretend to be righteous and good and impress everybody with our morality. Or we can run the other way and just avoid the church and those Christians and all those holy people and just live in our own little circles of, of shame and guilt. And, but ultimately, we can't escape it. We put our head down on the pillow at night, and there's just something in the background nudging and urging, saying, what, this isn't right. This isn't right. There's a shame, and we try to self-medicate the shame. We, right, we overindulge in alcohol or narcotics or, or, or sex or whatever it is that appeases us for the moment, doing what, trying to, trying to medicate that shame, and, and we can't get away from it. That's under the law. I mean, that's slavery, isn't it? It's bondage. Now, Paul's going to say this, but in Christ, guess what? We're not under that law anymore. We're under grace. And a natural assumption for a lot of people under grace is what? Since I'm just washed over with grace, I get to do what I want. And what we bring is our self-autonomy, right, from a rebellious, right, don't know God state into a now I know the love of God, the grace of God, but I still want to be autonomous. I still want to build my little kingdom here and do what I want. And Paul's going to say, really? Look at what he says. So he says, we're not under the law, we're under grace. What then? Verse 15, which is a rhetorical question, by the way. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And look at his response. And, and here's how I interpret this. He says, by no means, I feel like Apostle Paul is saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you not know 
that if you present yourself to anyone, I don't care, a person, an idea, an ideology, if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now, in a small sense, right, who wants chocolate to be their God or coffee or right, these subtle things? But in a bigger, more spiritual sense, he says what he says. Either, right, you're slaves to whom you obey, either of sin, you're either going to obey sin, which leads to death, or you're going to be obedient and you're going to obey righteousness, which leads to life, which leads to righteousness and then life. And so this is where we are in Galatians 4 in kind of a summarized way, Paul's talking about this. And in the end, he's gonna say, why do you keep drifting back to that former life of slavery? We gotta set you free. What we have to understand is this. There is, a, there is an authority shift when you become a Christian. You're no longer under this, this daunting, heavy law that the only way to make this far-off God happy is to obey this law perfectly. You've been adopted into a family, and now this authority has become your loving father. And that's what Paul is getting at here. You're a child of God. In a sense, it's no different from being a servant or a slave. You're still under the authority of God, except now something's different, and we'll get there in just a minute. Further on in Romans 6, verse 20, we'll put this on the screen. He reminds us when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you were now ashamed? Remember when you used to kind of do your own thing and live on your own apart from God? It kind of felt like freedom. But let me ask you if it was really freedom because what did you harvest in the end? Was it shame and guilt and bitterness and frustration and anger and false identity and, right? You felt like you were kind of doing your little thing in your own kingdom, but in the end, you knew what? You were harvesting nothing good. He goes on to say, for in the end, those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Then we get this very familiar verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, we've been set free from the shackles of sin and shame. They no longer have dominion over us. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And now in verse four and five, he's gonna explain why. Verse four of Galatians four. He's going to start with the gospel, and I love the way that Paul addresses the gospel here. He says in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, that phrase means when God's plan unfolded according to his time frame. Jesus didn't come to earth as a last-ditch effort or God getting in a bind. The timing of it was perfect. So at the fullness of time, the right moment in, in human history, God sent forth his son, full deity, born of a, a woman. This is where full deity takes on humanity, born under the what? The law. Now think about that. We've got this holy, all-knowing, all-powerful son of God involved in creation, like he helped put molecules together and helped kind of design how atoms would work and how DNA would, would, would govern the way that biology works. And so like he's the creator of it all. 
Gravity was his idea. And now he, as he comes to earth, he's subjecting himself to the very thing he created. What a humble God we have. Not a God who says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be far off and, and I'm going to tell you what to do, but a God who says, I'm willing to walk your journey. He subjected himself to flesh. It means that Jesus probably had stomach aches, probably had diarrhea, maybe even had acne. He knew what it was like to submit himself to the law of gravity and to fall down and get hurt. A good chance Jesus skinned his knees up just like any other little boy. He knew the pain of abandonment, of being made fun of. Jesus knew the taste of tears when you weep after you lose somebody you love. Jesus knew what it was like to be falsely accused and to be thrown in prison as an innocent man. Jesus knew what it was like to be publicly humiliated, scorned, beaten. He knew what it was like to suffer. And yes, Jesus even knows what it's like to die a physical human death. He willingly subjected himself to those things. And here's the way I think about that. From Genesis 3 forward in human history, right, we're living in a world and there is an enemy of God who is seeking to devour God's creation, to distort his image, to steal his glory, to kill, steal, and destroy our lives. And his, his means are so subtle. Deception is his number one MO. And so ultimately, we're born kind of behind enemy lines, if you will. And what the Son of God is doing in the incarnation of Christ is this. What we just read is that he's saying, I'm willing to go behind enemy lines to rescue you. There's no place on earth that Jesus is not willing to go to rescue you. There's no situation you've ever been in or you could ever be in that he would be so embarrassed that he's not willing to come to you, to embrace you, to love you, and to welcome you in. Jesus is coming behind enemy lines to rescue us. That's what Paul's saying here. At just the right time, the Son of God was born through Mary, what, to experience human flesh and to walk behind the enemy lines. Why did he do that? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive something. To receive what? Adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters. Now, I want to stop for just a minute. I want to pause. And let's talk about Six Flags for a minute. Um, I don't like Six Flags. Sorry if you love it. If you own stock in Six Flags, have fun. Just don't invite me and don't be offended if I don't go, okay? Now, my disdain for Six Flags goes back a long, long ways. Not only do I dislike the heat, the black asphalt, the long lines, uh, the gimmicks to get you to spend a lot of money, but when I was in youth ministry, I had to go. <laughs> if I didn't take my kids to Six Flags, I was all of a sudden the neglectful youth minister, and we're going to go to a different youth group because their youth minister takes them to Six Flags, whatever. So here's how I would handle it. Um, I had two different, two different ways I would handle this, and this is somewhat of a confession. I'll just be honest. If you've got kids, if you're, you've been at this church long enough to have kids that run under my student ministry, here it goes. I'm just going to be honest with you. So here's what I would do. My wife can testify to this. I would take the kids to Six Flags. Hey, six flags. And so we would get there at the gates. We'd all get in, and I would group them in groups of four or more, stay together. Here's our meeting times and places throughout the park. Here's your chaperones, the rules. Go have fun. I've got to run to the restroom real quick, and I'll catch up with you. 
Because I learned that once you're in, you can come out of the park and come back in all day long. So I would slip out and I would walk over to Humperdinck's, have me a nice bowl of ice cream, some iced tea, and I would sit in the air conditioning, watch whatever sports game was on the TV, didn't care, and I'd set my, my clock for just the right time to walk back to the park, meet up with the group, you're having a good time, Six Flags working out, awesome, I'll see you again at four o'clock, and I'd go back to Humperdinck's. True story, huh? <laughs> my wife finally caught on to that. And so that was my strategy, that's how I dealt with Six Flags. Now. This year at Christmas, for whatever reason, we decided to buy our kids season tickets to Six Flags, which was a lovely idea because we've been once. So it was really, really paid off. And, um, and so, um, but so here's the thing. I, I learned something um, about Six Flags that um, was, was an invaluable lesson for me. Back when I used to take the students, one time I was checking all the students in and I saw the sign for the Fast Pass. You guys seen the Fast Pass? You can pay extra money, you get the fast pass, you go by and scan the rides you want to ride, it cues you in, then you come back by and you just walk away the front of the line. And now, can I just tell you, that seemed like a good idea? Oh, I just thought I hated Six Flags. Because three rides in, I was so sick at my stomach from all the G-forces and the swirling around and flipping upside down and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't realize that those lines were there to help you recover <laughs> before you go submit yourself once again to the torture that is... Six flags. And so like three rides in, I don't care what I paid, I was looking to give that thing away. I didn't care who it was. I was so sick in my stomach, I gave that fast pass away. And here's why I share a story with you. Because when I talk to Christians and I listen to Christians talk, I think for so many of us, our mentality is this, that somehow being a Christian means you've been let into the park, but now you've got to go stand in the line to get to God. And I see so many Christians today living their lives just standing in line. Do you have a purpose? Yeah. Do you know who you are? Yeah, God saved me, loves me, did this thing with Jesus, I got my ticket, I'm in. Now I'm just waiting. Not realizing that at the moment you are saved, you have been given a fast pass into the presence of God. This is what Paul's getting at. You're no longer an orphan or a stranger. You're not waiting in line to get in. God's not waiting on your application to come through so he can process your paperwork. You've been adopted. That's permanent, instant identity right there. If you have come to the place in your life where you have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, at that moment, if you are a, are, 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 are a male, I don't care how old you are, five years old, 50 years old, 80 years old, 100 years old, you are a son of the living God at that moment. Your primary identity in life. I don't care what other identities you've been striving to build for yourself, a faithful worker, a good employee, a good boss, even a good husband or wife or a mom or dad. This identity supersedes any other earthly identity. God says, you're mine because he speaks with the highest authority in the universe. And he says, you are mine. Fast pass all the way to the front. God places a chair and a, and, a, and a plate at his table. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Doesn't matter what table you pick out for your house, it's got a seat, the whole family. Everybody has a place. And God says, here's the thing. You don't have to wait until a spot becomes vacant. You have a place at my table. You're adopted in. You're mine. And there's no voice with more authority in the universe than the voice of your heavenly father. And Paul says that Jesus has come behind enemy lines to rescue us and to adopt us into God's family. That we might receive the adoption as sons. 
verse 6. Now keep in mind, we're still under authority, whether we like it or not. God is still governing the universe. His laws still apply. If you trip and fall, you'll still fall down. Still wrong to murder, right? Those things are still there. But now we see the authority not as a far-off, arbitrary deity, but look at what Paul says. Here's what makes it good. Verse 6, and because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. Now, the parents in the room, I think, are probably kind of getting where he's, he's going here. But every person in the room has been a child. And every person in the room can remember when there was an authority over you that forced something upon you that at that moment you felt like wasn't good for you. But in the end, you look back and you're able to say, oh, that was good. Now, I'm not saying every authority that has been in your life has been good. Probably have tons of examples of abuse authority, right? So I'm just talking about the this genuine sense of I want what's good for you, right? You wanted the, 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 the extra bowl of ice cream or whatever it was as a kid and mom or dad said, hey, no, I'm gonna draw the line here. And in that moment, you felt like what? Hey, in my kingdom, you're not obeying my rules. I know what's best for me. But there was an authority over you that said, no, that's not what's best for you. And it was a, a good authority. And so this, this is where Paul is going. He's saying, listen, God's authority is good because he is a father. From this moment forward, you will have the Holy Spirit in you and you won't call him just generically God. You'll actually call him dad. And you'll live under his guidance in your life as your father. Now we see a beautiful example of this in Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. In just a moment, we're gonna get to experience baptism and I'm excited about that. But I think it's so important for us to understand the essence of baptism, okay? It's not a ritualistic act. It's not just a, a thing you check off your list to make God happy. Baptism is a, is a declaration of faith. Let's look at Matthew 3 together. We'll come back to that. This will be up on the screen as well. So here's what's happening. If you can imagine... Jesus approaching you, if you would have been born in this time, and he comes up to you and says, hey, I need to be baptized, and I want you to do it. Right? Immediately, we're going to be like, I don't think so. <laughs> Is this a trick question? Where's the camera at? You need, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. So John the Baptist and Jesus have this conversation, verse 13. Let's skip down if you don't mind. Because ultimately, here's what Jesus says to John the Baptist. He says, here's the thing. We're going to let this happen because our the heavenly father, the ultimate authority has said to do it this way. And so he said, let it be so now. Verse 16, and then when Jesus was baptized, he went under the water, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You see, it's not only a declaration of the person being baptized saying, I trust in God and I'm his and I believe in him. There's a declaration from the father in that moment saying what? You're mine. This is my son. This is my daughter. And here's the thing. I am well pleased with them. That should catch you off guard. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, God is just as pleased with you as he ever could be. He is so pleased with you right now. 
that should catch you off guard. That should cause you to step back and go, wait a second, what's the catch? I've had a rough week. I haven't earned that kind of favor. And God would say, I know you haven't. That was the point of Jesus coming behind enemy lines, living a perfect life. He's earned my favor. And when you trust in him, I'm giving you all of that. God is as pleased with you. If you're a Christian right now, he is as pleased with you right now as he is with Jesus. It's all or nothing with him. You don't wait in line to get into the kingdom of God. God says, I'm ready to adopt you right now to choose you. That's powerful. If you've been adopted or you know somebody who's been adopted, just to know that I was chosen. I didn't have to apply for this. God says, I am pleased with you. And that should catch us off guard every time we hear that. You're mine. Men in the room who are Christians who have trusted in Jesus, you are God's son right now. And he's pleased with you. Ladies in the room, listen to me. You need to hear this. I don't care what culture is saying to you. You don't have to be a certain shape, size, skin tone. I don't give a rip about what the world is saying to you. You need to hear the voice of the almighty God. If you're in Christ, he's saying to you, you're my daughter. I couldn't be more proud of you. You're beautiful. You're love. You're elegant. You're radiant. I made you that way. And you're mine. You're mine. And then in verse 8 and 9, our loving Father reminds us through the Apostle Paul to not try to drift back into that former identity. Look at what he says in verse, this is Galatians 4, 8 and 9. He says, now formerly when you did not know God, remember when you were a slave to elementary principles of this world, you were under the law, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. You know, the people in your life whose approval you want, they make lousy gods. Living based on what your boss thinks about you, is, that's a, he's a, he or she is a lousy god. Finding your worth in what your spouse or your, whoever you're dating is thinking in you. Our teenagers aren't here right now, but they need to hear this. That, that, those, those boyfriends and girlfriends make lousy gods. And that's what he's saying here. Things in your life that are trying to steep you in bondage and addiction, they are lousy gods. But that's not who you are now. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Your loving father is saying that to you. Why? Why would you go back? It set you free from that junk. Open the prison doors. I've unlocked your shackles to set you free. You're still under authority, but you're under the authority of a good God. Don't go back and submit yourself to the authorities of the principles of this world. They make lousy gods. You're mine, and I've set you free. I've set you free. Let me pray for us right now, and then we're going to move to baptism. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, God, that you are a, an initiator in love. You have made a way and you've come to us and you've called us and invited us, God. 
there isn't a person in this room or on the face of the planet who is beyond the grasp of your grace and your love, your forgiveness and your mercy. But we thank you, God, that not only do you love us and set us free and invite us in, you lead us. You sit in authority over us as a good father. And God, I want to be the first to admit, I don't always get that. I don't always like that. I still, in my, in my flesh, will, will rail against that as a rebellious child. So thankful that you embrace me as a loving father. You're patient with me. When I read things in your word I don't like, I push back against, you don't kick me out of the family, but you embrace me, you love me, you're patient with me. And God, I pray that for us today, that each of us could find ourselves as a son or daughter under the authority of a good father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, we are ready for baptism, and before we move any further, I want to let you know just a couple of things. If you're visiting with us today or you're new to Christianity in the church, you may not have any idea what's about to happen, and let me just tell you and put your mind at ease. Um, no magic show, nothing crazy is about to happen. Somebody's going to come up and get in this baptistry, go under the water, and they're going to come back up. Okay, that's the plan. And there's nothing supernatural or miraculous about this water. Um, it came out of the sink at City of Fort Worth Water, just to prove my point, okay? But what baptism symbolizes is incredibly miraculous and sacred. Jesus gave us this, this outward picture of baptism to portray an inward faith that would say to everybody watching, I believe and I trust in Jesus and him alone. The person being baptized wants you to know that he is, he, Jesus is their rock, their savior, their hope. But it's also a beautiful declaration from the father to the person being baptized saying, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. So I want you to know that before we go forward, that baptism is a symbol and it's a beautiful declaration of faith and trust in Jesus. That being said, I'm gonna invite Jill Keaton and her husband Dave to come on up for baptism. Would you join me in welcoming Jill Keaton up? Come on up, Jill. Come on up. Dave, won't you stand right over here by me if you don't mind? And I'm going to help Jill up and into the water here. Take your time. How's the water? Warm enough? Good. Just grab the sides there and have a seat. Um, just a little bit about Jill. Um, she's got lots of friends and family here today, people who've been a part of this journey. She even has a friend here from California who's come out today. So we're glad to have all who've been a part of her redemption story and her journey to get to this place, especially grateful for her loving and patient husband, Dave. Yeah. And if you were at our all-members meeting in January, we just spent some time sharing testimonies. You may remember a gentleman taking the microphone and talking about praying patiently for his wife and how she had become a Christian. And that was Dave, shared that with us. And now here we are today uh, getting to meet Jill and to see the fruit of the love of God and the patience of a husband and the love and support of friends who've encouraged her along this way. And I think just, I'll just share this with you. Um, it can be real intimidating to get up here in front of all these people, can't it? Yeah, a little bit. 
And, and, and that may be you today. I just want to let you know, it's just it's such a blessing to me to see the courage of, of this follower of God, this daughter of the Most High God, who even though she doesn't want all this attention, is willing to say to you, I love my father and I'm not embarrassed about that. And I want you to know it. So I'm honored to be here with you today, Jill. I'm going to read a little bit of her story to you so you can get to know her a little bit better. These are her words. She says, I was actually baptized as an infant in my uncle's church. However, I was the kid who went to church on Easter and Christmas Eve. That was my religious upbringing. Throughout my years as a child, a teenager, and even as an adult, I would occasionally visit different churches with friends. But I never would return on a regular basis, nor was I very interested in actually learning about Jesus in the Bible. When my husband and I were dating, we talked a lot about religion in the Bible. He very patiently answered all my questions, even the hard ones. One day I told him I wanted a Bible and he bought, one, bought me one. But again, I really didn't do much. Prior to us getting married, my husband asked me if I'd be willing to go to church when I moved to Texas. And I quickly said, yes. We found Solid Rock and almost two years later, Solid Rock has become our home. One day Dave wasn't feeling well and I went on to church alone. That was a big step for me. I think being alone really allowed me to focus on myself and what was in my heart. And after the service, I went up to Jason and I told him I'd like to become a Christian. I do remember that. <laughs> Wide-eyed, this is her description. Wide-eyed, he said, now? <laughs> yep, right now. So he and Jennifer Henderson prayed with me and I became a Christian. I've been wrestling with baptism. I think I was just so self-conscious at being baptized at my age. But I've come to realize there is no right age, only the right time for you. I'd really like to thank my husband, Dave, who's been so patient with me, my friend, Kelly, whom we've had many discussions on being a Christian and praying, my friend, Annie, who has helped me understand things I didn't before, and my friend, Debbie, who has offered her support and encouragement. I'm ready. I'm ready to walk in a new life with Christ. Gosh, that's amazing. Well, Jill, I'm honored to be here with you today. I truly am. And to be a part of your story in just a small way. I've got three questions for you. Jill, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Yes. And do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life? Yes. And have you come to the place in your life where you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Yes. Awesome. What's well, based on that profession that I'm honored to baptize you, my sister, so I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in death and raised to walk in a new life. Amen. Well, let's take a moment to pray if we can. And as we pray right now, I'd just like for you to think about your own journey, your own story, um, the amazing story that God is writing with your life. And I would ask you one question, one question alone. As we pray together, have you come to the place in your life, in your journey, where you have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone? 
You've let go of the elementary principles of this world, the voices of this world, the things that this world tells you you have to do to be valuable to take hold of the hand of Jesus. Let's pray together now. Um, Father, I do wanna pray for any person here who has not come to that important, pivotal decision that today would be the day of redemption and salvation and adoption that God, you right now would meet that person where they are. Your Holy Spirit would beckon and, and invite and encourage and nudge that person to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, as we pray right now, for that person. I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and that's you and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, but maybe you're hesitating because you're not sure fully what it means or you don't have all the things figured out, can I just encourage you and just say, listen, God wants to meet you right now where you are before you have it all figured out, before you have all the answers. I mean, that's what faith is about. It's about believing. If that's you and you're here today, the God of the universe wants to be your loving father. And he says, here's how you acquire adoption. You believe. Trust in my son, Jesus, and what he has done to rescue you. If you'll trust in that and that alone, you're mine and I am yours for all eternity. If that's you and you want to pray now, it could go something like this. Jesus, I choose to believe to believe that you are who you say you are and you've done what you say you've done. And so today I'm letting go of my trust in this world to take hold of your hand and trust in you and you alone. Please bring forgiveness into my life. Wash over me with grace. Show me what it means to live according to your purpose. If that's you today and you've prayed that prayer or one like it in your own words, listen, I'm gonna encourage you. Be courageous enough to share it. Follow Jill's example and just be bold enough and courageous to let somebody know that today you've become a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus. Somebody you've come to church with or maybe one of our prayer partners, one of our elders or staff members, let us know that we could encourage and pray for you. And now, God, we turn this time over to you. Holy Spirit, move in our midst, speak to us that we might hear and be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name.